This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. Sarah and I connected via Twitter following her appointment by President Biden to chair the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. And with her long list of credentials, publications, and her keen awareness of equitable land use planning, I felt she'd make an ideal guest as our field grapples with these heavy but important issues when it comes to saving historic places. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, and today we're thrilled to be joined by Sarah Bronin, who is a professor at Cornell University, um, an architect, an attorney, uh, and a leading voice on historic preservation law and land use practices, and also was recently uh, nominated by the Biden administration to chair the United States Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. So we will jump into all of that very soon. But like on most episodes of PreserveCast, it's always really interesting to learn how people got into this. So, um, Sarah, what was your path to preservation? Where were, where, what got you involved? And I suppose, what was your spark? Well, I first got into preservation in architecture school at the University of Texas uh, when I took a preservation studio for the first time seeing how uh, architects and and uh, might, might use preservation as a way to interpret and understand the built environment and also more broadly urban design. And from there, I started to learn more about the preservation movement and got really interested in the power of historic preservation to improve place. And so what was your what was your first job in the field? So you go from sort of that sort of realization to do you study this and then you go out and how does it, how does it all come together? Just after that 5-year program, I, I secured an internship with the National Trust for Historic Preservation in DC uh, in the public policy department and Um, was really interested uh, there in understanding uh, both uh, what was happening at 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 the statewide levels across the country, but then also actually we did some projects in the local D.C. area, which sparked my interest in how different neighborhoods, even within one city, could be treated very differently when it came to preservation regimes, preservation investment, and preservation policy. And so from there, uh, right after that, I went uh, to Oxford for two years, and my senior thesis ended up being about Washington, D.C.'s residential historic districts. Interesting. So you're there, and then you go from Oxford to what's the next What's the next stop? Um, then law school. There's a lot of schooling in uh, my background, I guess. And um, and, and after that, I got my job as a professor right out of law school and have been uh, primarily a professor ever since. And doing a lot of interesting work. I mean, publishing a tremendous amount. If you look at, um, and we'll put a link um, to your bio over at Cornell in the show notes, um, but there's really interesting, you know, in-depth CV um, of all these different areas that you've published on. And it's, it's not, I think people should understand it's not just preservation. It's obviously 
related land use practices as well. And I want to get into that. We've actually had some people email us, listeners saying, hey, we need you guys to talk about zoning because it's like so top of mind right now. So I really want to like dive into that and nerd out a little bit on zoning with you. Um, and you seem like maybe the right person to do that with. Um, so, but but where are you, so today geographically, we know career-wise you're a professor at Cornell. So that's what you're doing professionally, but where are you located? So right now I'm beaming in from Hartford, Connecticut. I'm sitting in the second story of our 1865 Civil War era brownstone, uh, right on Bushnell Park, the oldest park in the country. And um, the brownstone is one that we renovated from top to bottom because it was uh, really crumbling uh, in a city that used to have uh, so many of these. There's just a a handful left and uh, we were really glad to have the chance to do it. So that's physically where I am right now and where I, um, I've i been over uh, the last summer until I uh, re- relocated at least uh, for a time to Ithaca, New York, where, of course, Cornell is. And how did you, when did you end up in Hartford? How did that all come about? Well, after law school, um, I got my first uh, post-law school job as a law professor uh, here in Hartford, the University of Connecticut. And uh, we've stayed here uh, ever since, uh, other than three and a half years in D.C. uh, When my husband worked for the Obama administration in the Treasury Department, Um, we've been here. And now my husband happens to be mayor of Hartford. um, So he's he's invested in the city uh, and we love it. Yeah, it's probably like the most investment you can make in a city, I think, is probably being the mayor. Um, so that's, <laughs> it's pretty cool that we've got a, uh, you know, obviously uh, a preservation-minded mayor. And, and um, he, he'd at some point maybe be an interesting one to interview as well. But um, I would love to talk to you about, we'll talk about zoning here in a second, but you also published a book recently. You, what, what's it about and where can people pick it up? Oh, well, the the book is the second edition of Historic Preservation Law. Uh, My co-author is Peter Byrne, who is uh, a Georgetown professor and the mayor's agent in uh, in Washington, D.C. And the mayor's agent is a one-man preservation review board. So he's got his uh, pulse on on local uh, policy as well. And our book uh, is really intended for uh, classroom use, but I guess anybody could pick it up. Um, it's for people who are in historic preservation programs or planning programs and law programs as well, policy, um, and really probably at the graduate level, but, but people interested in learning about many different facets of historic preservation law. We cover federal law, uh, of course, Section 106, Section 4F, the interaction with NEPA, uh, NAGPRA, Native American uh, issues, um, and also, of course, local regulation and the many different dimensions of that, both what local governments can do and also the constraints on their power, including constitutional law constraints um, and a bunch of cases that have gone through the courts challenging uh, local historic preservation regulations. And so it sounds very, uh, very legalistic, but we've tried to write it in a way that contextualizes the law for the current environment. And the second edition adds some sections on uh, climate change and its impact on preservation, as well as uh, sections on um, really the, the challenge of cultural inclusion. Uh, that is um, a, a, an important issue across preservation law and needs to continue to be a subject of analysis and debate. 
So for anyone listening who was wondering perhaps why the Biden administration um, appointed Sarah to be the chair of the advisory council, I think that that answer probably sums that up. I can't think of anyone better equipped to understand all these issues um, than, than you. I mean, obviously you, you literally have written a, a book on, on these issues and it's, it's exciting to know that someone of your caliber, hopefully will eventually be there. I know it's a Senate confirmed piece and I don't know if you've had your, your hearings or not yet. Maybe we can talk a little, we'll talk a little bit about the ACHP. Um, but you know, I think it's interesting. There's this, you know, not only in your career and in, in this new publication, but, but just broadly defined, I mean, an email landed in my inbox yesterday um, about upzoning and, oh my God, what, how do we handle this? And should we be worried um, from a preservationist in a different state um, than, than here in Maryland? And um, so should, why or why not should preservationists care about zoning? And then maybe we'll kind of like dive a little bit into that um, because this is an area that I think a lot of preservationists perhaps aren't as familiar with and people listening um, in their communities are hearing more and more about this. And I think that there's a lot of misinformation out there and people get scared. Um, and so it'd be really cool to talk with someone who actually knows what they're talking about this um, to kind of dig into this, if you would, a little bit. So from your perspective, understanding both sides of this, both the, just the pure land use side and the preservation side, how much should preservationists care about this issue right now? So lots of preservationists interact with uh, the local system of regulation. They might serve on their historic district commission or bring a project uh, to the local historic district commission uh, for review. Zoning is really a, a parallel and much broader power that's typically exercised at the local level, and it controls every uh, thing that gets built within the jurisdiction. It dictates what uses might uh, be available to property owners. It says how big buildings have to be. Um, and of course, it also puts uh, in place particulars uh, in terms of lot dimensions and uh, the way buildings can be, look where they can be located on a lot, in addition to array of a lot of other uh, types of, of rules uh, related to uh, the built uh, project form. So preservationists should care about zoning because zoning rules can dictate whether a historic property can be rehabilitated because, for example, uh, zoning's restrictions on uses that may be too onerous might prevent a property owner from finding a viable economic use for property. We see this a lot here in Connecticut where zoning often doesn't allow our industrial mill buildings to be reused for housing, which is probably the most economically viable use for these buildings because let's face it, we're probably not going to be uh, the place that, that manufactures typewriters and brass buttons and clocks like uh, Connecticut used to be known for. Um, we, we don't have that manufacturing that culture anymore. So a lot of these buildings, their best use is housing, but zoning prevents them from doing that. The other thing that zoning does is it often requires minimum parking requirements for every use uh, that might be proposed for a project. So let's say if you're proposing housing, you might have to build two parking spaces for each unit. If you're trying to um, uh, build a building on a historic main street, 
that has a ground floor retail and upstairs housing, parking requirements are often a deterrent to that kind of adaptive reuse because they require you to either maybe even demolish part of the back of the building to accommodate parking or demolish the building next door, or worse yet, requires you to keep parking that's there in place. When we all know that that parking uh, and curb cuts are really a big deterrent to the kind of walkable, charming character of historic places. So when you look at these historic neighborhoods that have been either chopped up or disinvested, or you have a lot of curb cuts and parking lots, you can probably blame zoning for a lot of that. And that's, I think in part, just we've we've developed these zoning policies without really thinking that much about how important uh, they are for the way that we experience space. And we have a lot of local regulators all around the country that are making decisions because they think they're in the best interest of the community, but oftentimes the results are, um, are, are maddeningly, avoidably bad. <laughs> So uh, zoning reform is something that preservationists should should really uh, take up as part of their mantle um, and part of the things that they advocate for at the local level and even at the state level. And if you know, if I could, I'd love to to, to mention a project we've been doing in Connecticut. Um, it's a coalition called Desegregate Connecticut, which uh, we founded last year in June of 2020, and. We have, uh, so I'm leading that effort, but but we have 75 co- uh, coalition members, all nonprofits, and three of them are state's three leading preservation organizations, Preservation Connecticut, Connecticut Preservation Action, and the Connecticut Main Street Center. And the reason that those organizations have pitched in on zoning and have been very vocal about the need to uh, rethink the way that we regulate land uh, in Connecticut is because they've seen the impact of Uh, sort of outdated zoning laws on our historic environment. So I would say, yes, zoning, get involved in in that. Uh, Urge your local zoning commissions to modernize their standards and do it with the eye of what would be best for our historic places. Mixed uses, walkable, fewer curb cuts, a lot less parking, maybe no parking. We actually here in Hartford um, uh, eliminated minimum parking requirements altogether. Um, so there's a lot of different policy options on the table. And I'd say go full force into that discussion in your towns and communities. It, uh, it's, it, it's a fantastic answer um, and, you know, super helpful kind of framing it that way. I suppose also, though, and, and I'm, I'm curious about this, and this is not like a counterpoint or anything, but like people get really in the preservation community sometimes gets worried about this push to get rid of single family zoning as well. So single family housing zoning or zoning that basically just mandates that. Um, And I'm not sure why that is because I think it's interesting if you look at a historic neighborhood, like the neighborhood I live in, which is sort of an an evolution of different periods. We on this street have single family, we have duplexes, we have triplexes, we have some rental units, and it just sort of evolved that way. Um, And so I think it's interesting when people start talking about they don't want single family zoning and they want the community to look like this, this and this, and they want mixed middle, um, you know, this missing middle housing and everything. I'm like, oh, that that sounds a lot like a historic neighborhood. So in, in some ways, it's like historically, this is how we did evolve. And then we kind of put barriers around it and and prevented it from evolving the way it did historically. But some preservationists seem to be worried about the whole single family housing piece and that zoning piece. Should they be? Does that open up the floodgates to sort of radically change 
neighbor like like historic neighborhoods or is it is it something that can be a part of the evolution how do you address that piece in particular so many neighborhoods across the united states are zoned exclusively for single family use we actually don't know how prevalent that number is across the country. In other words, how much land is devoted to single family purposes, but we do know how much of that land uh, is devoted to single family in Connecticut uh, because we've conducted this really awesome uh, atlas. It's on on the website of uh, Desegregate Connecticut that documents the housing characteristics, the zoning uh, for every inch of the state. And what we found is that 91% of Connecticut allows for single family housing as of right. 2.1% of Connecticut's residential land allows for four or more family housing as of right. If you look, however, at the way Connecticut evolved historically, many, many of the neighborhoods that most Connecticuters would look at and say are incredible neighborhoods are those neighborhoods where you had Maybe you had a main house, but you often had an accessory apartment over a carriage house or um, somebody living on the third floor of uh, one one of the older houses. Um, As you point out, over time, some of the houses changed. Some of them became two family, um, even three family, uh, all with the same single family uh, house outside. So what we have locked in with with zoning rules um, and by taking those historic neighborhoods and then imposing new rules that lock them into single family and then only allowing single family uh, after that in the decades afterwards, let's say in the 1960s, 70s and beyond, we've locked ourselves into a one size fits all regime where we're really limiting opportunities for not only us to diversify our housing stock and meet um, the the true need for affordable housing uh, nationally, um, but we're also hindering our ability to reuse some of these really large older homes that, frankly, we don't see much of a market for anymore since people are no longer having eight children. Uh, We've seen a huge population decline uh, in Connecticut is another example, um, 10% lower uh, child population, according to the latest census numbers, than 10 years ago. And that, that's a, a, a huge demographic and economic problem in and of itself. But it also speaks to the fact that the, we just don't have large families who want to occupy these really big older homes that were built to accommodate maybe not even just the one family with kids, but uh, another family who was, again, uh, maybe a a family member, a a caretaker, a staff member who lives in some of these uh, um, garage apartments, accessory dwelling units. So when we went uh, through the phase in zoning where we outlawed not just multifamily housing, but also accessory apartments or accessory dwelling units, as they're called in some places, um, we really did preservation a disservice because we sort of froze in uh, in amber um, the uses, uh, which was really contradictory to the way historic properties were used. So that's not to say that there's not a role for single family housing to be uh, located um, you know, in places and, and you know, that there's certainly um, many wonderful neighborhoods that are zoned for single family. But to the oftentimes it's been to the detriment of other types of housing that um, it hurts us in lots of different ways. 
Yeah, I think it's a it, it's really well put, and I, I feel like it's a it's a critical issue for all of us to kind of take a look at, and 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 hopefully uh, the advisory council could provide some some great uh, feedback on that, and some some thoughts for the preservation community in, in coming years on how how these issues can come together. Because I think the preservation community could be a great force for this, um, but it's an area that a lot of us um, you know have haven't dabbled in, and and it's I, I think it's something really important, um, and obviously with your background in in law and land use. Um, you're, you're poised at this moment um, in time to help everybody out. So this might be a good place to quick, take a quick pause and then come back and talk briefly about um, the advisory council um, and uh, your appointment. And uh, then uh, maybe talk a little bit about your favorite historic place. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. Today's episode of PreserveCast is once again sponsored by McDo Preservation. McDo Preservation specializes in best practice research and analysis for nonprofit and government clients. To learn more about McDo's data driven, community driven approach and commitment to equity, visit McDo.com. That's M C D O U X.com. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast today. We're thrilled again to be joined by Professor Sarah Bronin of the Cornell University, um, and we've been talking about all things law and land use, um, uh, everything from single-family zoning um, to um, her new second edition of preservation law and kind of diving into the intersection between preservation and a lot of different important topics. Um, So um, the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation is, uh, well, I guess in your words, how would you describe what it is and how did your appointment come about? I think people would be fascinated by that. So the Advisory Council is an independent federal agency that has uh, the primary role of advising the president and Congress on historic preservation policy, uh, and also probably more familiar to listeners, the role of reviewing uh, Section 106 projects under the National Historic Preservation Act uh, for their impacts on historic properties. And how did my how did my nomination come about? Yeah, uh, how do you, how do you, how does one get nominated to be the chair the chairperson of the advisory council? Well, you know, it, it's it's a long process that the president has to fill uh, agency positions. He has uh, lots of appointments and uh, a, hundred, a few hundred of them do go through the Senate confirmation process. So the process is, um, you know, the White House uh, identifies maybe a short list of people. They they ask to be sure that you're interested. And then you go through a pretty intense vetting process. At least so far, it's been very intense and I'm sure it will continue to, to be so. But they, um, you know, you do a full background check. Um, and uh, disclose all kinds of personal and financial information and where you've traveled to and foreign contacts you've had and, um, you know, any speaking engagements uh, that might be relevant. And so it's it's just a lot of information. And, and I guess somebody goes through all of it and determines whether um, between that and, of course, the substantive qualifications or, or priorities for the job, um, that person uh, might be nominated. So I got the call um, just before the public announcement in June that I would be the nominee, and I was very excited um, about that. And, you know, ever since, so continue to go through the vetting process and hopefully we'll be on the Senate calendar sometime this fall. Well, well, that is exciting, and we'll have to uh, 
we'll we'll do an update and put the uh, the C-span up for when you get your uh, your your conference. I don't know how grilling it is if it's like a Supreme Court justice or not, but um, uh, we'll we'll look forward to seeing the hearing. Um, and you know, I know it's probably like a justice. You can't you can't say how you would rule on something uh, prior to being appointed, but. Um, Anything just in general you're hoping to bring to the advisory council? I mean, you've had this really interesting background and, and career to this point. Um, is is this? Uh, do you have any any hopes, aspirations for how how your time with the advisory council will be spent? Um, I, I think really broadly, I hope to ensure that people across federal agencies and even the general public recognize that historic preservation brings a lot of value and that. Um, it is a matter of law and policy. It's something that uh, agencies must consider in their decision making. And we hope that, um, you know, I hope that through the advisory council, we'll just continue to be that that voice for preservation at the Capitol, um, you know, within the, the beltway, but also to, to expand that beyond. And I should say the advisory council has already been working on um, that kind of expanding knowledge about preservation uh, for some years, I and mean, they've really, um, especially over the last year, done uh, webcasts and and uh, liaising with uh, tribal youth and uh, working on uh, workforce development. Something we were talking about before uh, we started recording, uh, you and I, um, and have really tried to expand uh, both audiences in preservation as well as understanding of preservation. And I hope that that's, that's something that I can continue to do, as well as looking at the substantive policies and, of course, the Section 106 reviews that come across our desk. Yeah, I think it, it's a it's an exciting time for, for the agency. Um, they haven't always had a full-time chairperson, so I think you'd be the second full-time chair um, if confirmed. And so it's... Um, you're right about all of that. And they really have elevated their profile. I think that they've done a fantastic job. So um, it's exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm very ex I was just going to say, I'm very excited to work with the staff um, as well, because if, you know, many of preservationists, if they've had occasion to work with the advisory council staff, they've seen just really a depth of knowledge um, and uh, commitment uh, to these issues. And, and uh, you know, as, as I've gotten to know folks a little bit more through this process, it's made me much more excited um, than I was even before, which is hard to believe, but uh, about the, the prospects and the possibilities ahead. Well, once once confirmed, maybe maybe we can even have you back as you have sort of even a more robust agenda that you're putting together. Um, before we let you go, and this has been really fun and interesting and um, and really helpful too on on the zoning side. I think it's a good good food for thought for folks who are listening to this. Um, but the 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 most challenging uh, question we normally ask anyone who comes on: What is your favorite historic site or place? Well, the one I use the most is the one across the street from my house, which is Bushnell Park. Um, again, the oldest oldest public park in the country, or said to be, uh, with a number of. Uh, of interesting features, uh, some continuing aspects of the original design by Jacob Wiedemann. Um, again, here in downtown Hartford, it's between the state capitol and uh, what you might call the economic center of downtown. And directly in front of our house is the sign of the Charter Oak, which is where uh, the colonists supposedly hid the Constitution um, from uh, British forces. Um, or the Charter of Connecticut, rather, and one of the reasons why we're called the Constitution State. So there's a lot of history. I'm looking right at the Charter Oak as I say this right now, and it's such a such a pleasure to to be 
in uh, in a place where you can enjoy um, this park that, that people have maintained and cared for for so many years and hopefully will be for many, many hundreds of years to come. Well, it's a, a fantastic answer and always good to have one close to home. Um, this has been a lot of fun. I'm so glad that we were able to connect. Uh, this is another uh, Twitter encounter that brought us to PreserveCast here. And um, looking forward to seeing you um, in, in front of a Senate committee at some point and, uh, and hearing about your confirmation hopefully soon thereafter. Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. Thank you so much, Nick. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.